Good morning. It's Monday, the 27th of November, and this is Govind Raj Raj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital, and now having to choose between weekend rain and the usual pollution. Our top stories and themes for the day. Bank lending to NBFCs jumps dramatically three times to 14 lakh crore rupees in just five years. Massive spikes in new credit cards issued and spends in recent months. More people are watching satellite television in India, decoding viewership numbers for the latest World Cup cricket. And Indian students overtake the Chinese in Germany, now at around 42,000. This is a call report with Govindraj Atiraj. Markets, stocks and oil. Today is actually a markets holiday being Guru Nanak Jayanti. So we will be still going with Friday data for Tuesday trade. But there's lots happening around the world, including in oil, which I'll come to. So on Friday, the Sensex closed at about 65,970, down 48 points, while the Nifty 50 closed at 19,791, down 11 points. No major moves, but the benchmark indices have now clocked a fourth straight week of gains thanks to improved growth prospects in both the automotive as well as the pharmaceutical sectors. While the headline indices have been somewhat steady, the broader markets are strong, with the BSE mid-cap and small-cap indices continuing to rise. It's interesting how there was a patch around two months ago when all kinds of alarm bells started ringing on how mid-cap and small-cap stocks and indices were overvalued or too rich. Now, small and mid-caps have gained something like 42 and 33% respectively. That's Small caps, 42%, and mid-caps, 33% in 2023, as compared to the Nifty 50, which has only risen about 9.3%, according to a Reuters computation. But now then, we seem to be back at the point where the markets appear to feel that there isn't much choice anyway. Where the markets seem to be training their eyes and energies, potentially, I guess, in the search for value, is obviously the 7,000 crores of initial public offers that opened last week. The Tata Technologies 3,000 crore IPO saw a roughly 70 times subscription or oversubscription on Friday. Flair Writing's 593 crore offer was oversubscribed about 47 times, while Gandhar Oil Refinery, it's actually oil for the pharmaceutical industry mostly, was oversubscribed around 64 times. But over the year, there have been some other interesting trends. In one line, L&T or Larson & Tubro, the engineering and construction company, has done better than Hindustan Unilever or infrastructure has done better than consumer. Now, this is a little unusual, at least going by past trends. Bloomberg says that there is a tectonic shift towards industrial stocks in India, usually seen as a market that bets on consumption. And I say market here, I mean the stock market. This is also, and obviously thanks to the government's big infrastructure and heavy industry-linked spending. The BSE Industrials Index, a gauge that includes makers of bridges, helicopters, and wind turbines, has surged about 54% this year boosting the combined market value of its 214 members by about $125 billion. Now, that's beaten the BSE Sensex, which only grew about 8.4% in 2023 and outpaced the gains in the two indices of consumer stocks that combine or make up household staples and discretionary goods. On to rupee and oil. The rupee is oscillating against the dollar, but seemingly edging lower almost every week, even if only marginally. It ended at a record closing low on Friday at 83.36 against the US dollar against its previous close of 83 rupees 34 paise. 
Asian currencies like the Thai baht and Korean won were also under pressure, as they've been in recent times, as US Treasury yields have risen. The 10-year yield has now touched 4.47%, and the two-year Treasury yield was about 4.94%. Wedding season is approaching, and some 40,000 marriages took place in Delhi on Thursday last week, being an auspicious day. Cities like Mumbai must have large numbers too, but no one seems to be aggregating the numbers so well here. Some 3.8 million weddings are expected this season. When I say this season, I mean this wedding season for this year with a spend of about 474,000 crores till July next year, if I got that right. According to the Confederation of Indian Traders Association, which appears to be doing a masterly exercise of collating wedding data down to the fact that some 50,000 weddings will spend more than a crore of rupees each. Delhi alone will see 400,000 weddings this season, which means a tenth of all couples getting married in India are in Delhi or other numbers are not available. And the Delhi spend is believed to be about 125,000 crores or almost a quarter of the national spend on weddings will happen in the capital city. Among other anecdotes, there are a few auspicious dates until the end of December, so activity will pick up again in January, the CAIT has said. Possibly because of that, or for additional reasons, which brings me to the point, gold prices are not rising the way they would usually. According to Reuters, lackluster demand for gold during the wedding season in India has prompted dealers to offer steeper discounts. The bullion industry was hoping the momentum seen during the festival of Diwali a few weeks ago would continue, but higher prices seem to be hampering wedding season demand, a Mumbai-based bullion dealer with a private bank told the news agency. Local gold prices in India were around 61,000 rupees per 10 grams on Friday after hitting a record of 61,914 rupees last week. Speaking of weddings, the Prime Minister of India has urged Indians to celebrate the weddings in India, referring to the trend of international destination weddings. Is it necessary? He asked in his weekly radio show. There are, of course, good or solid vanity reasons for going overseas, as I have seen, but sometimes it's just about plain cost and logistics. Delhi traffic in wedding season is a nightmare, not that it is not otherwise, and resort hotels in India, I would argue, are more expensive than similar properties, at least in Southeast Asia. So, the cost of a wedding somewhere in Southeast Asia versus, let's say, in Goa, including the cost of, let's say, 100 to 150 families flying in and staying in for three nights for a Delhi-based family might actually be less, which is, it'll be cheaper to go to Southeast Asia across many destinations as opposed to going to Goa or maybe even a Jaipur. Meanwhile, reports have emerged of a UAE or a United Arab Emirates-based Indian businessman celebrating his daughter's wedding on a Boeing 747 private jet on Friday. I wonder how you would classify that in India or is it outside? Back on ground or technically under it, oil dropped after struggling for direction in a low-volume session as OPEC Plus or Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries Plus countries tried to resolve a disagreement over output quotas that forced the group to postpone an important meeting that should have happened anytime now. The international benchmark Brent fell to settle below $81 a barrel after swinging between or in the $2 range in low-liquidity trading. Oil prices will probably tread water for the most part ahead of the meeting, Commerce Bank AG analysts wrote in a note adding that Saudi Arabia still appears willing to shoulder the lion's share of the supply cut needed to stabilize the oil market, Bloomberg reported. The NBFC conundrum and the Reserve Bank's warnings. 
I'm sure you know that if you wanted a home or a car loan, you could go to a nationalized or a private sector bank, let's say a State Bank of India or a Kenra Bank or ICICI or HDFC Bank, or you could go to a non-bank finance company, which could be someone like a Bajaj Finance. The way it works, the likes of Bajaj Finance or the NBFCs are more efficient at dispersing loans. They work in turn more efficiently with fintech companies who together grease and lubricate the processing and process so well that consumers rush to them to take loans if only to live a little more lavishly. And by the way, this is what the data shows. Let me go through some numbers quickly. Figures from Trisil Rating say that the total NBFC book is around 27 lakh crore rupees, which is divided roughly like this. Home loans around 25 to 27%, vehicle loans around similar 25 to 27% and unsecured loans. The topic that we've been discussing here in recent weeks in the context of their dramatic rise around 12 to 14% around 350,000 crores. So, unsecured loans of non-bank finance companies are not that large in the scheme of things. Actually, 88% of loans are secured, which means there are some underlying assets, which could of course be in the house or of course a car. So why the worry? I will come to that in a moment. The other big figure is that bank loans to non-bank finance companies have gone from some 500,000 crores to a whopping, I don't use that word much, 14 lakh crores or three times in just five years to 2023. So, loans from banks to non-bank finance companies. So, this is an interesting situation, which is not new in itself, that banks are increasingly lending to NBFCs rather than directly to, let's say, industry or others, who in turn, of course, when I say who in turn, I mean NBFCs are growing in leaps and pounds. Crystal says the assets under management of NBFCs could grow 14 to 17% next year, thanks to continuing strong demand across retail loan segments. Now, remember, last week, the Reserve Bank of India governor said, and we discussed it here, that banks should cut back lending to NBFCs and that NBFCs should borrow elsewhere, referring and warning against a possible contagion effect. So now it's all coming together, at least for me. So I reached out to Ajit Veloni, Senior Director at Crystal Ratings, and I began by asking him what lay beneath these numbers before moving on to the other posers I mentioned earlier. I think firstly, to just set the context, the NBFCs did go through a challenging phase. If you look at the 2018 to 2022 period, you had the liquidity challenges, you had the impact of the pandemic. But I would say that since the second half of fiscal 22, I think sector has steadily come back to a growth path. And this has come with what we would say is a very strong balance sheet. So two aspects we typically would look at from a balance sheet. One is leverage. And second would be whether whatever you call as a stressed loans, whether they're adequately provided. And if you look at current levels, I think leverage levels have steadily come down. And even with the recent growth, leverage are much lower than what you would have seen in the past. Provisioning also, and in the terminology, we use the term called cross stage three and cross stage two, basically referring to NPAs, which are more than 90 plus. And stage two is even more stringent because you're referring to an account, which is the early potential stress, which is 30 to 90. This combined, if you actually plot it for the last three years, that's also trended higher, which means that uh, NBFCs are being proactively ensuring there's adequate provisioning. So today, I think the health of NBFCs remains very strong. And with uh, the boom that we are seeing in terms of the retail assets, we actually expect that this year they will grow about at least 16 to 18% if you look at this fiscal. For the coming fiscal, you at the beginning did mention about the RBI measures. See, these measures are more targeted at the unsecured segment. Now, in our assessment, if you look at the total NBFC AUM pie, this unsecured will be about 12 to 14 odd percent of this. 
So the little more direct impact is to 12 to 14%. And I think what we see specific on these measures is that there possibly could be a recalibration, as we call it, of a growth strategy because the segments have grown at a fast pace. So because of that, compared to the 16 to 18 of fiscal 24, our estimate is the growth could may moderate, could be a likely wider range of, say, 14 to 17%. But the rest of the MPC AUM pie, uh, which is uh, the housing loans and uh, vehicle finance loans, uh, I think the growth remains fairly strong. I think good drivers on the housing side, even vehicles, underlying asset sales remain strong. So there we're expecting growth to be more than 13 to 15% in housing loans and vehicle finance to, to sustain at least a 17, 18% growth. So overall, 14 to 17% growth if you look at the coming fiscal too. So which also suggests that NBFCs are more in the front line of lending and connecting more directly perhaps with consumers. Absolutely correct. I think if you just look back over the years, payment infrastructure change has been massive in India. The Bureau, I think, is playing a very, very important role in order to be able to build in a very good amount of you know, frictionless kind of disbursements. You are able to go to a store. Literally, it's today 15 seconds when you're able to kind of get, you just have to give your mobile number, be able to pull out a bureau report so quickly. I think with the account aggregator framework coming in, hopefully with access to bank statements, it will also make underwriting even more seamless. Of course, the only area is collections, I think, is something where we'll still have to rely on a, on a touch and feel. But there too, I think we are seeing a lot of steps being taken by NBFCs to see that you know, as a pre- due date calling and a lot of automation to keep giving these reminders to ensure that a pre-delinquency basis you have, you know, you have things under control. But what you said is right, the NBFCs are much more nimble, agile to basically ensure the reach distribution and they are there where there is a spend happening. Right. So the numbers that which essentially come from your report, 27 lakh crore is the total AUM or assets under management on of NBFCs in India. 88%, as you said, is mostly secured, which is the houses or the homes and personal vehicles and so on. The unsecured part is about 350,000 crores, which I guess is where the maximum focus is on right now. And the Reserve Bank seems to have clearly already sent out red flags on this. But my question, Ajit, is then if the unsecured part is only 12% or 12 to 14%, then why is the Reserve Bank saying that or why could the Reserve Bank be wanting or be so keen to delink NBFCs a little more from the banking system? If indeed everything was, at least the majority of it or a large majority of it is secure. So maybe two aspects to look at. I think firstly, to look at the interconnectedness you refer to. If you see what was the banking system lending to NBFCs overall, it was only about 5 lakh odd crores in March 18, which today is more than 14 lakh crore. So that's the fastest growing segment from a banking sector perspective is actually loans to NBFCs. You have, of course, also seen on the NBFC side, therefore, when you look at their liability profile, we also find that the share of bank loans has gone up significantly. So today, bank loans is nearly about 43% of the resource profile of an NBFC. And this in, say, March 21 was just about 35-odd percent. The second aspect you mentioned about uh, unsecured thing, whenever you find from a regulator perspective that any segment where there is a very, very fast, rapid growth, I think it's all element of caution. And even if you look at the recent reports put out by the regulator, be it the financial stability report or even the speech made by the governor recently, we've also said that it's more an element of caution to ensure that the growth is not at an irrational exuberance in that sense. And that's a term the governor is used to. So I think it's more, we would say, as an element of caution. In terms of ticket sizes, we have do seen, of course, at slightly lower than 50,000 ticket size that there's a slight inch up in delinquencies. Of course, at that lower ticket size, you also find the yields are higher. 
So I would possibly say it's about being cautious, monitorable. And because you've had a very, very rapid pace of growth, to just ensure the growth remains calibrated. And that's the role of the regulator too at a systemic risk level. Could one say that, you know, if the banks are lending 14 lakh crores to NBFCs, which is up from just 500,000 crore, did you say in three years? This is 2018 to 2023, this period. I mean, it's almost a three-time jump. That's right. Uh, Does this mean that banks are unable to lend to consumers directly or are not technologically savvy enough? And this is the clear gap that NBFCs have filled. Many of these loans could have gone directly from banks themselves, isn't it? That's true. So I think it's a very good point again you brought in. If you look at system level credit, that is you take banks and you also add the non-banks, the share of retail as part of system level credit is also shot up. So for instance, if you take the latest figures, I think roughly we are about 164 odd lakh crore if I recall. And I'm netting off the bank lending to NBFCs. The share of retail is now at around 43% of the overall system credit. This again, if I compare it to the five-year-back figure, it was about 35%. So it's not that the banks have not grown. I think they have continued to grow. One element from banking system to keep in mind is that the banking system did go through a huge challenge on the corporate space, right? We've had this whole MPA and the stress asset recognition cycle. And there has clearly been this element that we would like to bring in granularity into the book. So the banks are focusing on retail. And an additional element is that they are able to try and collaborate better with NBFCs. Uh, some of these lines are also co-lending lines. So it's a mix of both. You know, the banks want to show growth in their book. Uh, there is a good deposit growth which is happening so far. And at this juncture, we have seen them channel it towards either direct retail or towards NBFCs. Possibly as and when we do eventually see the private sector capex cycle kick up, at that time, we'll probably again have an element of you know, where the banks decide in terms of how much of the credit goes towards corporate versus retail versus India. Ajit, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Gunther MT. Thanks. Meanwhile, the spending and race for credit continues unbated. The number of credit cards issued in the country went from some 65 million in January 2023 to 95 million in October 2023. And the spending on all of this has gone from 142,000 crores in September which is really two months ago, to 178,000 crores in October, a new high. Now, festival sales are obviously pushing a lot of this or some of this, but it's a new high nevertheless. Point of sale transactions were around 57,000 crores, while e-commerce payments were around 120,000 crores in October, the Business Standard reported. HDFC Bank is the largest credit card issuer with about 19 million users, followed by State Bank at 18 million and ICICI at 16 million. So there are some interesting trends inside this, including, of course, the e-commerce payments, which seems to be pretty high. And of course, the jump that we've seen in the last few months. Decoding this is something that one must do, but at a later stage. World Cup Cricket's Record Viewership Numbers Things are looking up for Disney globally and in India known as Disney Plus Hotstar. Earlier this month, Disney globally reported better results on streaming and experiences, which means parks. In India, a business that's been reportedly up for sale for a few months now, in the words of Disney's own global CEO earlier, the ICC World Cup Cricket 2023 turned in record numbers, which is a global record, by the way, for sport, with concurrent viewers on streaming hitting about 59 million for the finals, and some 520 million people tuning in to watch the tournament as a whole on traditional or satellite TV. 
Disney Star also provided an extensive 11 feeds for the ICC Men's Cricket World Cup 2023, including nine different languages. So the numbers are all very interesting, but how do they split up? So I reached out to Sanjog Gupta, CEO of Disney Star Sports in India, and I began by asking him what stood out this season in terms of not just audience consumption, but also behavior. So it was a pretty historic day, Govind, when the numbers came out and the final proved to be a record-breaking event for Indian television and worldwide streaming. We had 59 million current viewers watching on our digital platform, Disney Plus Hotstar. And when the ratings data came out, it showed that we had 131 million concurrent viewers on television, which is also a record for Indian television as far as audience aggregation is concerned. That's pretty remarkable for the media and entertainment industry because on one side, you have a platform that has grown significantly over the last three to four years and is seeing massive usage, which is obviously streaming. But at the same time, you have the linear platform, as you called it, the traditional platform, which continues to grow and shows signs of aggregation which are unparalleled for the industry. That final was watched by 300 million viewers on television, making it the biggest event or the most watched event in Indian television history. Right. And when you say 518 million TV, is there some sort of comparable figure internationally for any other sporting series? I am not sure of comparable viewing figures, Govin, but I would think that the World Cup final would go down as one of the most watched events in television history around the world. Although I don't have data from markets to really draw comparisons with. The other piece which you mentioned, which is the World Cup itself, the 48 matches, also registered more than 400 billion minutes of watch time. And that in a time when media choices are increasingly fragmented, and attention is perpetually at a deficit, shows what a unifying force live marquee cricket can be to engage viewers at scale in terms of their numbers and for a length of time, which is unparalleled. And I think that, to my mind, is also testament to what a event of this stature can deliver in the media and entertainment space. Right. So now streaming has obviously grown, as has television. In a percentage sense, if you can share that, I mean, what is more, let's say, remunerative between TV and streaming at this point of time? I think we are in an interesting space. What we've seen is, as I was saying, digital streaming continues to grow in scale. During the course of the World Cup, we saw the currency record broken four or five times. It going from mid-30 million right up to about 60 million. And we saw pretty much the same trend with television concurrency, which was hovering between 70 to 80 million for the league stage games, and then started ramping up dramatically for the semifinals and final, reaching, as I said, 130 million. So we're in an interesting market where both platforms continue to grow. And this we see both in terms of viewership and in terms of ad dollars, where Television, by virtue of its base and existing size, is still growing and thereby bringing in more ad dollars. And digital is growing at a faster clip but on a smaller base. And thus, both as a complement seem to be delivering much higher yields than we've 
seen in the past. And you're seeing different sets of advertisers for both platforms or some overlap or lots of overlap? It's interesting. This space is evolving. We had more than 40 sponsors across TV and digital. Some brands chose to advertise only on one platform and leave out the other based on the objectives they had around saliency, user acquisition, and driving usage of the platform. Some chose to be present across platforms. Mahindra and Mahindra is an example of an advertiser which chose to spend significantly on both platforms because they had brand objectives within the portfolio brands they managed, which were being served by both platforms in certain capacities. The interesting thing this World Cup was the scale of spending by FMCG, which reached levels we had not seen before. And I think that may have to do with the timing of the World Cup, which also coincided with the festive season. And obviously, FMCG players wanted to drive consumption and thus wanted to unlock value across both TV and digital platforms. Right. And before the tournament began, we spoke and you had said that there were advertisers still lining up. So did you cross your targets, meet your targets when it comes to ad dollars between both platforms? We were very satisfied with the way advertisers responded to what was available as an opportunity and a truly unique opportunity to advertise on what is clearly the most marquee reach aggregator in the Indian media and entertainment ecosystem at a time when consumers are predisposed towards spending, which is the festive season. Right. As you look ahead, there's a lot of sports and cricket, but of course, nothing off the scale of this World Cup for some time. How are you seeing two things? One is cricket or other sporting activities. Second is the consumers and their, let's say, propensity to either continue watching on TV or switching to streaming or consuming the way they were consuming, let's say, in recent weeks. So broad thoughts there. So I'll highlight two trends. One, this has been a landmark year for cricket consumption. We delivered the biggest ever IPL on TV, followed by the biggest ever Asia Cup on TV, and now it's the biggest ever World Cup on TV, which seems to suggest that television as a platform continues to remain a significant choice for fans to experience this aggregating phenomenon called live marquee sport which requires you to watch at a certain time and is driven by a sense of community like no other content genre tends to demonstrate. We've also seen, as we were discussing earlier, records being broken for TV and digital almost in parallel, which makes us believe and validates that belief to a large extent that there is enough headroom for growth for live marquee sports properties across TV and digital. We have the Pro Kabaddi League starting from uh, December 2nd. We have, obviously, the IPL coming up next year, which will be closely followed by the T20 World Cup. So in the next seven or eight months itself, we have three or four big marquee sports events, which will attract the same scale of aggregation, perhaps differing by the volume of consumption and the volume of viewers who tune in, but in some sense, still have the aggregative capacity to bring a whole lot of viewers in at the same time, wanting that communal feeling of experiencing that one moment together as a community. Right. Thank you so much for joining me. You're most welcome, Govan. Thanks for having me.
Indians overtake Chinese in terms of number of students in Germany. Indian students studying in Germany have surged significantly in the last four years. According to a report by studyinginggermany.org quoted by the Mint newspaper, the number of Indian students in Germany has increased 107% in four years. According to this report, about 20,000 students were studying in Germany in 2019 and that's now up to 42,000 students roughly in 2023, placing India at the forefront of international student representation in Germany. Earlier, China had been the biggest source of international students in Germany, but this position is now taken over by India. Currently, there are about 39,000 Chinese students in various German universities. The number was roughly the same in about 2019. And overall, in Germany or in the United States, which I'll come to, the number of Chinese students seems to be steady, suggesting that the number of Chinese students going overseas is either stabilizing or even reducing. The United States saw a 35% jump in Indian student numbers annually, touching an all-time high of 268,000 in the academic year 22-23. China is ahead but only slightly now at 290,000. Indians constitute almost a quarter of foreign students in the United States now. On that note, between traveling overseas for weddings and traveling overseas to study, have a great week ahead and see you tomorrow. This was the core report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at the core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. Write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening. Listener.